0: Hi, I'm Michael Wright.
1: And I'm Katie Gossett.
0: Welcome to a bonus bonus edition of White Silence. We're calling it that because we released a bonus episode on November the 28th to mark the day of the 40th anniversary of the Erebus disaster. And that had stories we'd collected since the podcast was released or that we couldn't fit anywhere else. This bonus bonus episode is a little bit different again. If you followed the news about Erebus, and if you listen listened to this podcast, hopefully you have... You would have heard, on the 28th of November, New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern say something pretty significant.
2: After 40 years, on behalf of today's government, the time has come to apologise for the actions of an airline, then in full state ownership, which ultimately caused the loss of the aircraft and the loss of those you loved. This apology is wholehearted and wide reaching. We will never know your grief, but I know the time has come to say I'm sorry. The New Zealand government and Air
1: New Zealand apologised for the Erebus disaster. This was a pretty momentous step. It was something we talked about ourselves in episode 6 – that Air New Zealand had clearly made mistakes that contributed to the crash and an apology for that was sorely needed so that people, especially the families of the victims, could really move on from what happened. This apology was not expected and it was a big deal. The government was accepting the findings of the man report and clearly saying the pilots weren't to blame for the crash. We really felt like we had to do
2: something to acknowledge it, so we spoke to Jacinda Ardern. I read all of the statements made at the time that the Mann Report was finally tabled in Parliament in 1999, and it all built a picture for me of unfinished business, and that wasn't right.
0: We'll have that interview for you soon, but first we want to talk a little bit about the news of the apology, because it was genuinely surprising to a lot of people. Maria Collins, you'll remember she's the widow of the captain of Flight TE901, Jim Collins. Maria sent me an email on the morning of November the 28th, the anniversary. And in that, she wrote, In a century or two, there will be an apology from the airline, but it's too painful to do so in our lifetime. Well, later that day, that apology arrived. One of our producers, Justin Gregory, spoke to Maria Collins and started off asking her about that. So you had no idea the apology was coming?
3: None whatsoever. In fact, I'd cynically said that we'd be long dead and buried before... Uh, anybody would come up with the word apology and it would come in a hundred years' time or something like that.
0: When did you sense that an apology might be coming?
3: I had no sense whatsoever until sitting in that marquee and listening to the niceties that are always said with these occasions. And suddenly she came out with this and then followed immediately by the chairperson of the Air New Zealand board that They each extended an apology and I was totally taken aback. I I couldn't really believe my ears.
0: Yeah, what made you think it was so impossible?
3: Well, it's easier to apologise when you've had nothing whatsoever to do with it so that there's not a hint of guilt and you can blandly forgive the sins of the forefathers, as it were, because you had nothing to do with it yourself.
0: Justin did this interview with Maria Collins in Auckland a couple of weeks after the anniversary. And listening to it, the next thing she said kind of surprised me. You would have heard on this podcast Maria Collins talking about the pain of her husband being blamed for the crash in the Chippendale Report back in 1980 and the lingering effects that had on the family. Well, when Justin asked her if it was a good feeling to hear the apology, this is what she said.
3: Well, it doesn't change anything, Justin, does it? No. Maybe the history books will now say that on the 28th of November 2019, an official apology was extended by the Prime Minister at the time and the chairperson of, of Air New Zealand. But it doesn't change anything, and you will have read the letters to the editor and the comments in the daily paper are uh, just as vicious, vindictive, or calming and apologetic, as they always have been.
0: The Prime Minister was unequivocal, though. That that surprised me when I was listening to it.
3: Yeah, she was. But as I say, we've known that. But having said, right, well, it wasn't his fault, my husband's fault. Um, it doesn't change anything further, in that he's he doesn't come down from a silver cloud and say, well, now that I'm forgiven, I can come and live amongst you again. It <laughs> doesn't work like that.
1: So Maria Collins was happy about the apology, but not jubilant, and she wasn't alone here. We also spoke to Margarita Mann. She's the widow of Justice Peter Mann, the Royal Commissioner who found the crash was entirely Air New Zealand's fault, not the pilot's, and that the airline had tried to cover up its mistakes. When Jacinda Ardern apologised, she said the government 100% accepted Mann's findings. Margarita lives in Auckland too, so we sent Justin to see her to ask what she thought about
4: those words. It was by chance... That I heard because a young relative from out of town had texted my daughter and said hooray, hurrah and so forth. We said what's this about and my daughter happened to have called in. We turned my little iPad on and this speech came up and I sat back in my chair and i it was unexpected, yes. And I thought, that, that's really nice. So
0: you were invited to the event on the 28th, but you decided not to go.
4: Uh, I don't normally go to any function on that date because I regard it as belonging to the relatives of the people who died and nothing to do with the commission. Yes, that's their day. Hours came later.
0: (laughs) There are people who see Peter as one of the victims of the crash. You don't quite agree?
4: (laughs) don't know how to answer that. Uh, I suppose I could say he had choices. Mm. Hmm. But he was treated badly. That bad treatment,
1: as you'll no doubt know, stemmed from one specific part of Mann's report. It was the part Air New Zealand challenged in court that was overturned and which ultimately led to man resigning as a judge. The orchestrated litany of lies.
4: It was one sentence only <laughs> and that sentence came about because there were lawyers at the commission representing Air New Zealand and... He had got to know that they could present more than they were doing. And it annoyed him because they knew better. He said, they were taking me for a fool, which I'm not. So he was a man of words from a little boy. He'd kept books of words that he came across and phrases and so on. And so he felt that he had to express that annoyance, and so he chose those particular words. He used several dictionaries while he was putting the phrase together to be sure that they expressed the right matters. So that's how that sentence came about. And uh, then it went round the world.
0: (laughs) What would Peter have thought of the apology now?
4: Uh, He would have thought it was gracious, but 40 years too late. (laughs) Yes. It was also too late
1: for David Nicholson's parents. You'll remember David from the podcast. His sister Christine, a young teacher, died in the crash. Their parents were quiet, private people who didn't speak of the tragedy outside the family, but followed every detail of the disaster and all the controversies that followed.
5: I think that they deserved to hear the apology. They had um, read widely all the evidence and analysis that had gone on around the accident. They firmly believe that Justice Mann and the commission had spoken truth to power, and that the ultimate cause of the accident was in line with Mahan's findings, that ultimately Air New Zealand had been responsible at the time for not briefing their pilots on changes to the navigation course, they would have felt that the voice of the small people had been heard, I think.
1: As for David, well, he'd never really been to any of these official commemoration things before and didn't quite know what to expect. But because we'd approached him to be on white silence, he decided, on behalf of his parents, to go along after 40 years and bring his children. And maybe it explained some things for them too.
5: Well, it fills in a bit of history for them, you know, and as to the level of controversy that followed the event and the fact that Um, My parents had always been very sad and quiet about those events. I think also I felt very close to my parents and sister during the event. It was nicely done and well presented and it gave us the opportunity for reflection and in that reflection I felt very close to them.
1: Around the time of the anniversary, we heard from the Prime Minister's office that Jacinda Dern was available to talk to us about the Erebus disaster and her apology. We said, sure, but Prime Minister's schedules being what they are, she wasn't available for a couple of weeks, so we settled on December the 10th for an interview. On December the 9th, another tragedy befell New Zealand, when the volcano Fakare White Island erupted while dozens of tourists were on a trip there. At the time of recording, 16 people had died and many more were still critically injured in hospital. It was appalling, and of course our interview was off. But the next day, the prime minister was back from Whakatane and had some time. Here's Mike talking with Jacinda Ardern.
2: I was standing up. Yeah. Um, Um, no, I didn't want to cancel because I wanted um, things to be fresh in my mind. I didn't want to forget anything. So uh, okay, yeah, fair it was Recent. This way, I can be assured that I will give you as accurate a reflection of events as I can.
0: Cool. I can hear squeaking.
2: That's just um, That's someone bringing in the moving. closet. Thank you, Jane. Right.
0: Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, thank you for joining us here. Why now? What what prompted this?
2: The memorial. You know, this was, uh, I still remember uh, not long after coming into office, there being a conversation about the fact that the 40th anniversary was looming and still we were a nation without a, you know, a formal national memorial on our shores. And uh, that begged the question, why not? And I remember reading some of the the positioning pieces, people advocating for a memorial and just thinking it just made no sense to me. Uh, So I had, as a a new Prime Minister, some conversations with the Deputy Prime Minister and others and very quickly uh, felt compelled to commit us um, to the process of establishing a memorial. Now, in my mind, that felt like something that we should be able to do relatively quickly. Of course, I hadn't had experience in developing memorials and the work that they do take. And those who did within the Ministry of Arts, Culture and Heritage said, look, you know, involving families, involving people who are in, will be interested in the design and making sure it's in keeping and captures their views and reflects their sentiment, that's going to take time. And so one of those really important steps in developing the memorial was to meet family members. I still remember that. Um, I wanted to meet them myself. So we had a gathering in Auckland at uh, the Dalmatian Centre in the central city. And I walked into that room and realised that in that moment we had family members there together who had not been with other family members for decades. Uh, And I sensed in that moment the huge amount of emotion that still existed around Erebus. That process prompted letters, it prompted conversations. I um, met Captain Collins' family. I, as a consequence, read Privy Council reports, man's report. Um, I read all of the statements made at the time that the man report was finally tabled in Parliament in 1999, and it all built a picture for me of unfinished business, and that wasn't right.
0: Did you approach in New Zealand, or did the government approach in New Zealand? Like, how did it come to pass for for the 28th?
2: Yeah, so it was, you know, it was a conversation that yes, we did start and. So as we were working on the memorial, and as I say, um, it became clear to me that if we as, as a government, and I use the word government in a broader term, not just this current government, but governments um, for a number of years accepted the Marne Report, and we do, uh, keeping in mind of course the Privy Council were at great pains to point out that it was only the language around and natural justice issues mm. related to statements around Air New Zealand that they um, found against, but not the substantive report itself. So the report stood. The Marne report stood. And yet, if you accept the man report, and we do, that acknowledged that there was um, cause, a need, for there to be an apology, because it acknowledged the multiple failings, and particularly those that did fall at the feet of an airline owned by the New Zealand government. So in my mind, we had a responsibility. There being piecemeal apologies and piecemeal acknowledgements, but no one had actually said the words, "I'm sorry."
0: What did the New Zealand say when you brought that to them?
2: There wasn't a sense of any resistance to that um, by any stretch, and you know they absolutely acknowledged that this was something that you know we were keen to do as a government. They didn't push back on that at all. And then the conversation really became, you know, what role should they play? You know, was it appropriate that it be us as ultimately the owner? My view was that for completeness, that in New Zealand needed to be there too. I didn't know how the apology would be received, even at the moment that I was standing on the podium delivering it. I didn't know whether or not it would be something that even family members wanted to hear. I just knew it was finally the right thing to do but I did have a strong sense that if it was done without Air New Zealand there, that it may feel incomplete, and I didn't want it to be yet another piecemeal, incomplete acknowledgement.
0: How did you feel then on the podium?
2: It's hard to describe the emotion that was in that room. There were hundreds of family members there. And as I acknowledged and put on record again that this accident did not occur because of pilot error, that it was not their fault. I could see the Collins family and uh, I could see that it had a significant impact. So that meant when it came to an apology part, um, I could see that there was, there were genuinely people in the room who did not expect it. Mm.
0: Why do you think nobody has done this before? I know you I can't speak know. for them, but why don't you think anyone's mm. done this before now?
2: I cannot answer that. I do not know
0: Do you think someone should have before
2: you? Yes You know look I, I do have to acknowledge that, that time You know time Obviously changes A lot but for those families it changed absolutely Nothing If anything you know Maybe all it did was it Lead to the belief that it would never happen um, But I, I honestly I can't tell you uh, I can't speak for others but I also Do not know I just want to pick up before
0: we move on on a couple of things from the speech specifically. One of them mm. that stood out to me when I read it was, and you mentioned this earlier, once you'd uh, sort of given your summary of uh, Chippendale Report, Man Report, Court yeah. of Appeal and all of that, mm. you came back to the Man Report. I did. And you said those findings stood then and they stand now. Yeah. The yes. pilots were not responsible for this tragedy yes. and I stand yes. here today to state that to again. Say
2: state that again. Yep.
0: Is that the government taking a position on the cause of the crash here, or are you just accepting the findings as submitted by the Royal Commissioner there?
2: Well, those were the findings. and I mean, we've accepted the findings. And in fact, no one uh, no one has, uh, of course, I think, resolved from that, apart from that. I think one of the things that was probably most striking for me uh, was not only the huge contribution that man made by establishing the multiple factors, but by pointing out that actually there were some that were hugely significant amongst that list, and of course many credit him for, uh, you know, the contribution he made to the future of of investigations of this nature. But what is very clear um, from his report is his position on the pilots, and yet, you know, there is still this. For me, you know, when I was reading um, around the history of the time or seeing some of the commentary, of course, uh, despite the fact that that was on record, and that was never challenged, those substantive findings. Those substantive findings were not challenged, and yet, in the back of some people's mind, may still exist a hangover of Chippendale, and there's injustice in that. And so that was an opportunity to just restate what I felt should be restated. Hi, it's Mike here. This
0: part of the interview just needs a little clarification because it raises an issue that comes up a lot in the fallout from Erebus. The Prime Minister is correct in saying that the substantive findings of the Mann report were never challenged. It's important to say though that those substantive findings, i.e. what caused the crash, they couldn't be challenged. You might remember when we talked about the Court of Appeal decision in Episode 5, we explained how a Royal Commission isn't a court. The findings aren't a verdict, so they can't be appealed. So when Air New Zealand contested the man report on those natural justice and jurisdiction issues, that was through a judicial review, and it was about all they could really do. Whether they would have appealed the actual findings if they could have, and whether they would have won, are kind of moot points. But we do know there were a lot of people in Air New Zealand who disputed those conclusions as well. Okay, back to it. There will be some people, and I know there will because I've heard from some of them since, who don't agree with your apology on the 28th yeah. because as they see the, the pilots should take at least some responsibility for mm. this crash mm. what would you say to those people?
2: Oh, Erebus will be forever an event in our history that will hold a huge uh, weight multiple different perspectives from multiple different people all I think we had a responsibility to do was lighten the load. And we've tried to do that based on evidence. You know, man's report, it set out all of the different factors. But I think it was also very clear. Did it weigh on you
0: when you were reading that and considering whether or not to apologise as you did? Like maybe, oh, should I do this? Is this no. the right thing to do? Or was it easy?
2: No, no, it was, you know, there was, uh, I, you know, I'd of course should acknowledge I did it the only anxiety I had was just whether or not I would be compounding any pain for anyone that had already gone through an enormous amount and I had no desire to do that, I had no desire for anyone to feel it uh, we were relitigating things that they had found hugely traumatic and so that I did have that anxiety but as for the apology itself I did not question that it was the right thing to do mm.
0: Uh, the one other part of your speech that I'd like to pick up on was the very mm. last thing you said after Dame Therese Walsh had spoken. Yeah. Some say that the past is the past. We cannot change what happened. That fails to consider that our future is shaped yep. by where we have come from. It is shaped by our response to tragedy and injustice and by the people who stand up against it. And then yeah. you go on as we mark 40th anniversary of an event that remains etched in New Zealand's psyche. Mm. We reflect on all that is lost, all that we must learn and a future that yep. we almost keep striving to make better. Do you think we've learned, as we should have, from Erebus and how to deal with tragedy?
2: I do. Yeah, I do.
0: I'm not sure we do. I look at Cave Creek and Pike River and the earthquakes, particularly uh, the CTV building, and I see all the disillusionment and the heartache that, that people suffered because of that, people left behind, suffered. And I just see us not dealing with these tragedies anywhere near as well as we should or could even. Do you, we, do you disagree? We,
2: there are different elements of lessons here. Have we learned everything we need to learn about ensuring that anyone who goes to work can expect to ensure that their safety is a number one priority and that they return safely at the end of the day? There are still, as you say, lessons to be learned there. And I say that as we're still trying to re-enter Pike River. Have we learned how to make sure that we care for people in the aftermath of tragedy, how to support one another, how to be open about our failings, inquire into them appropriately and make sure that we're transparent? I do think we've learned lessons there. We are not perfect. No one can ever claim that. But we cannot keep learning these lessons in such a painful, horrific manner.
0: Can I just talk about the memorial? briefly because a, a bit has happened since that was first announced when you when you spoke to that earlier this year mm. was it this year was it last year was april was it this year
2: oh, i think mind, i feel like, just like it might have been last year but must have been this was it this year
0: forgive me april two april last year seems too far
2: it, it anyway does, it does.
0: April. hey mike here again uh the date neither of us can remember here is april 2019 it anyway, does, it does. April some year, yes. <laughs> when you said that, um, and a bit's happened since then. There's been mm. some protests and some opposition to that and some controversy out of that. There's another, as you'll know, there's another uh, delay with the application yeah. being lodged. Finally, how do you feel about this now? You've spoken a lot about that then and, and just now.
2: Would you would you like to see it go ahead? How do you feel about what's happened since? I, I remain absolutely committed to creating a memorial. It's, the time has come. There are some things that we need to, to work through, obviously. Look, we've done our bit, you know, with the Ministry of Arts, Culture and Heritage, and then we're reliant on really the local board side of that process and their engagement with the community and so on. Uh, I believe we'll find a way through. But surely there'll be consensus that the time has come. Mm.
0: Lastly, as someone who we mentioned in the podcast wasn't born when Erebus happened, Yeah as I wasn't, and a lot of people who I think listened to it weren't born or certainly aren't old enough to have a a well-formed memory of it. What does it mean to you?
2: I think it's one of those things that shaped New Zealand in many, many ways. It's etched in the collective memory of many. And at some points when I was working through all of the Different statements that have been given. There was often the sentiment included within it that, you know, people wanted to let sleeping dogs lie, they didn't wish to dredge up the past. And that's why, for me, that reference at the end of the apology the past is never just the past. Erebus impacted people forever. And I think we had a duty to acknowledge that until we did what needed to be done and acknowledged that impact and also what was unsaid. I feel like we were never giving people a place to put down their grief, and I think that was our job. Regardless of whether I was born, I feel the impact of Erebus on New Zealand.
0: Did you know anyone? Did you, or did you have a family,
2: friend, connection to, to it at all? No, no I didn't, and in fact uh, it feels relatively rare, but actually I have heard my parents talk about knowing people. I've collected many, many stories since being in this role, um, since working on the memorial, since working on the apology. One in particular on the day of the apology, a gentleman shared with me that he was at the terminal that day and he still remembers a young man there waiting for his girlfriend playing his guitar. You know, simple memories that I think have really changed people's lives forever.
0: Do you think... Do you hope even that this might not draw a line through the Erebus controversy, what's happened in, the, in, the, in your speech on the 40th anniversary, but do you think it might go some way to helping
2: get there? Mm. I think regardless, you know, I, I cannot assume or begin to assume what will give people, you know, loathe to use the word, because I don't know that you ever get closure or any sense of that from something like Erebus. I just wanted to give people a space where they could put down their grief. Uh, there'd been so many blockages to that. Too many people had had to fight too hard for too long to get basic recognition of some really important facts. And that, I think, had really prevented people just being able to grieve. So, if after 40 years we could do one thing, we could do that. Is there anything else you'd like to say? No, no. I think that. Thank you for reading the statement i pondered a lot on those words did you write it yourself yes i did substantively there were some elements that i went through quite carefully with um, some agencies versions of it that i just disagreed with and rewrote substantively but predominantly it was my words
0: Hmm. cool hey thank you for this jacinda that's great no worries Um, thank you we're done now so
2: cheers So
1: that's potentially the last chapter in the Erebus story, but we will be back. Remember, we're hosting a live show of White Silence in Christchurch in January as part of the Bread and Circus Buskers Festival. It's a panel discussion, so we'll have some special guests, and Michael and I will both be there to talk about how we made the podcast and answer your questions as well. It's free, but you do need a ticket to get in. Go to breadandcircus.co.nz backslash whitesilence for more details. Thanks for listening.
0: White Silence is a joint production by Stuff and RNZ, written, presented and produced by Katie Gossett and me, Michael Wright. Our executive producers are Justin Gregory and Tim Watkin for RNZ, And for Stuff, Carol Hirschfeld, Keith Lynch, John Harteveld, Kamala Heyman and Adam Dunning also helped produce this podcast. This episode was engineered by Alex Harmer. You can subscribe to the full eight-part series at Apple Podcasts, Spotify and other podcast providers. You can also go to the Stuff and RNZ homepages to listen or get details on how to subscribe. If you enjoyed this, you can check out other Stuff and RNZ podcasts like Gone Fishing, Killjoy, Black Hands, The District or New Zealand Wars.